Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, an immersive exhibition of flowers and plant materials. Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, celebrates the abundance and vulnerability of nature. On view now. On the next Fresh Air, bringing diversity into the fashion industry, we talk with Edward Enenful, editor-in-chief of British Vogue. He's the first black person to hold that position. He'd been told black women don't sell magazines. He proved that was false. As a child, Enenful emigrated with his family from Ghana to England. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. For the first time since the pandemic shut down, key players in our food network will gather uh, in person to reflect on our response to the COVID shutdown because that crisis exposed our vulnerabilities, our food insecurities. Uh, Chad Buck is the head of the Hawaii Food Service Alliance. It's said to be the state's largest distributor of perishable goods. It focuses on grocers and retailers, big box clubs and convenience stores. Buck believes it's important to consider what we just went through and use the momentum to strengthen our resilience. He's to be the keynote speaker at next week's Hawaii Agriculture Conference. My first, I guess, experience with the Hawaii Agriculture Conference was in 2019, just pre-pandemic. And so I walked in there. We, so we were like all things mainland for the most part. Largest supplier of highly perishable products for Costco, for Sam's Club, for Walmart, for Safeway, for Foodland, et cetera. And so we're also the largest handler of incoming air freight in the state. And so walking into that and then getting a clear picture at that conference in 2019, just pre-COVID, of just how just <laughs> how dire the situation is as far as Hawaii not producing, and it's less than 5% of what we eat here is local and that that 5% is almost irrelevant compared to what it actually takes to feed us. And so that started a lot of relationships and there's been a tremendous amount of progress since 2019 through the day. And so the focus of the keynote address will be talking about the progress that was made and a lot of that was kick-started through COVID. So it's, there's actual, I think, some real promise in what's going on and how people are, when we talk about Ulu and Taro, Ulu Co-op started doing some value-added products, the IQF, individually quick frozen, Taro, Molokai sweet potatoes, Ulu, etc. And so we partnered with them, and this is the first time now, and this happened in the last six months, you can go to CVS, you can go to Foodland, you can go to Safeway, you can go to the commissaries, and buy those items, which were never available in the mainstream, grocers and retailers. So lots of progress. That's just one example of many. Well, I can probably say that I just used some of that frozen ulu <laughs> in a in a curry yeah. <laughs> last week. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's so easy, right? 
already cut and you just drop it in and go. Yes, the convenience. It, it was just marvelous. Yeah. You know, I just have it in the freezer and then when I need something, you know, you just throw it in there. So, yeah, I'm a convert. So, I guess at this conference next week, mm-hmm. I guess we really need to solidify those connections, you know, what we learned out of this pandemic and how we need right. to be a little bit more food secure. Right. Part of the conversation that starts is I think the biggest thing that came out of that conference at that time, because that was also the first time that I actually heard that this state has like zero plan for disaster recovery, zero food supplies, emergency supplies for any major natural disaster. And so that got us engaged with David Lopez, director of HIEMA. It got some of the people from Hawaii Department of Emergency Management, Civil Defense from the neighbor islands. And so we started talking about food supplies, emergency supplies. That moved into further talks where now the Department of Defense is in place, Naval Postgraduate School started coming over as we looked at what could we do to set up and prepare for things rather than wait for them to happen. So we were calling that a pre-covery. So some real progress was made there. But this all, again, stemmed from the 2019 Hawaii Ag Conference. So food in that direction as far as preparing Hawaii and trying to make sure that we're taking care of our people and we have a plan in place. And so you go from all the way from emergency supply to how do we move more product from local suppliers, local vendors, local farms into the marketplace. And so kind of what has been our sweet spot in that is that because we're handling through our platform, refrigerated, the largest food fleet as far as trucking goes. So it's FISMA compliant, refrigerated trucking facilities on all islands, going to every grocery retailer club on every island every day. And so how do we start to collaborate and cooperate with government agencies when it comes to pre-covery or natural disaster preparedness with the farms and connecting them? So we already pull from mainland farms, so how much easier it is if we start working with local farms? And so we started putting local farms on our platform. And today, just you know, two and a half years later from the last conference, our local logistics platform now is over 60% local items. Wow, that's impressive. So there's a lot of hope, right? And a lot of people point at you know, what's wrong, what's not going right. But there's been so much progress and so many relationships that were built because of COVID. So we had to separate, but yeah, we really we, we got did. together in a lot of ways, too. We did, absolutely. Well, you know, as part of this conference, there's a youth component because, you know, we've got to be able to sell this idea of farms are great, you know, grow your own food in your backyard, but then to raise the next generation of farmers. Right. You know, what's been interesting, because there was the documentary Ketchup and M&M's. I'm not sure if you saw that. Yes. Um, so mm-hmm. that was... Albie Miles from CTAR at the time, UH, Josh Green, David Lopez, and myself. And that played two years ago-ish across the television stations, and schools were watching that, and schools started, speaking of the children, schools started putting that into their sustainability courses and their classes and so on. And so there's quite often we get invited to go speak at a school or go talk or serve on a panel because the kids are really getting interested in the, you know, usually junior high, high school, really starting to talk about this. And so it's fascinating to, I mean, Iolani School had a big panel and we, the same group went there and talked at the panel. And then the school came back with different things that they're doing 
for sustainability, for disaster preparedness. And so it really started to engage and kind of catalyze the, you know, the, the, the schools in the area and so on across the state to get involved in this. So, you know, again, all kind of spurred on by COVID and the pandemic that these, these were just birthed from. But I'd say the pandemic probably sped everything up considerably because it was the first time that we kind of realized that we're on our own. I mean, there were a lot of supply chain problems that caused issues in grocers and clubs and retailers. And so it really kind of moved us forward because we never really didn't have to think of it before because the grocery store shelves were always full. And that changed during the pandemic. And I think it kind of scared people and moved people to take more action than they probably would have if they never got out of their comfort zone. We have heard a lot about diversified ag, you know, Mm -hmm. when the plantations started to shut down. And, you know, we haven't really, I think, tapped, you know, what we need to tap uh, to make this happen. You know, whether it's a small farm on, you know, two acres, three acres, it's just hard to make a go of it. We've got to be able to support those small farmers. Right. I agree. We, you know, it's, it's interesting. During that time, so this is the end of 2020, because we're moving more towards the, you know, how do we get local ag in grocers, clubs, and retailers, and hopefully for export. I mean, we're, we're exporting some local ag products now that we're very excited about. But we, my wife and I picked up a 2,300-acre dairy farm that a mainland group had come in. This is on the Big Island. A mainland group had come in and set up a CAFO, concentrated animal feeding operation, thousands and thousands and thousands of dairy cows above the town of Ocala. You know, it it doesn't take a lot of thinking to figure that might not be a great idea to put that right on top of a small town that's been there forever. And they had some environmental issues. They actually got sued, and rightfully so, for what, what happened to the town and the people. And so they left town and left all that infrastructure in place. And so when we picked that up in auction, because they were going to auction everything off, FOB, all the equipment, all the improvements, all this ag equipment and processing equipment, the FOB for the auction was Long Beach, California. So they were going to cut everything up and send it away. My wife and I stepped in. We picked it up. The first thing we did was we met with the town and the people that sued the group and said, we don't have any plans until you're part of it. And this needs to be right for the community, right for everybody involved, and right to, you know, kind of feed our own people. But let's do this in a community-friendly, collaborative way. We went to the Department of Ag. Speaking of diversification, we went to the Department of Ag and said, hey, we want to do ULU here. We, you know, there's, a, there's erosion fears because it's on the side of Mauna Kea and dirt's running off and all kinds of different things because of the grade. So let's put some agroforestry. Let's put some ULU crops here. Let's diversify this. And they're like, whoa, 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 time out. That is dairy specific. And I said, well, you just had you know, thousands of cattle that made a disaster on this. How can and how would anything work if it's not diversified? And if if anybody thinks there's going to be another dairy here with the town that just sued the last one off, and so we just you know there's some things that need to be changed in just how Department of Ag and how the state looks at how do we diversify ag? How do we become stronger? How do we be in in harmony with the communities that we're in? And then we can move forward. But there's just a real need for a wholesale revisiting of all things, because we're used to big ag, right, with sugarcane and pineapple and so on. But how do we make this and put this in the smaller farmers' hands 
and diversify and work with one another and collaborate and move us, you know, kind of like the Ahupua'a type system where communities actually grew their own food and cared for each other versus big ag, undiversified, which is also not great for the environment as well. Yeah, so we need to reset, kind of go back to the way we used to do things. You know, to your point there, our future for Hawaii will have a lot to do with going back to the past. We've seen that, you know, in communities yeah. across the state where, where yeah. there's that sense of pride and yeah. we can reclaim this, we can heal the land and refresh. I agree 100%. And, and I think you'll find a lot of, the nice part about the, the Ag Conference is there's so many like-minded people. When you take a look at the groups that are there, I don't know if you could find a better group of people. Just because they're they're into the land, they're into taking care of their home. They call, you know, the Hawaii, which they call home. You got a lot of food bank people there working. How do we get local ag into food insecure communities? The relationships that were built there during that time were all instrumental. We're the lead distributor for the large food distributions for those in need. So Aloha Stadium, Polynesian Cultural Center, Leeward Community College, Ala Moana Shopping Center. We set that first one up. And so it was, but it was everybody that literally those relationships that were built or started at the 2019 conference were, were, the, were the first people to call to mobilize and start serving the state and serving those in need and serving the people that had been working, you know, right along like everybody else until tourism went away. And, and, And then, you know, a month later, they found themselves in a line getting free food from those that care. But the people that mobilized, you could have found them, every one of them, at the 2019 conference. So, I mean, it's just, it's pretty amazing. And so... Um, it was a big change for me as far as coming in and just realizing and, and, and seeing firsthand what's going on with our, our food chain and, and then getting involved. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping a lot of people will be able to take the time out of their day to go to the conference either on Tuesday or Wednesday and just see the, and participate in the different panels um, and just kind of see where the state is trying to head and where it needs to head. But I, I can guarantee that you won't meet a better group of people anywhere in Hawaii. And that was Chad Buck, founder of the Hawaii Food Service Alliance. He will be the keynote speaker at the Hawaii Agriculture uh, Conference at the Hawaii Convention Center. It runs next week, Tuesday and Wednesday, September 27th and 28th. The theme is Ag Agents for Change. It's open to all. Look for uh, interesting leaders to middle, high school, and college students. You can check out links on our website later today. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's quiz, we go back into the vault to test your knowledge about a Hollywood starlet. The lush beauty of our island state has been the backdrop for many leading men and women, either working or on vacation. One such talent was Francesca Marlene de Cheney von Gerber. 
Born in Chicago, September 4th, 1931, she has 17 films to her credit and became one of the top singing and dancing motion picture stars during the heyday of movie musicals. At the age of 12, she was discovered by legendary producer Edwin Lester, and she danced for the Los Angeles Civic Light Opera's Ballet. Uh, five years later, she was signed to a seven-year contract with 20th Century Fox, and initially her stage name was Mitzi Gerber. A Fox studio executive disliked it so much it was changed to another using the same initials. For today's quiz, who is this starlet? And extra points if you can tell us uh, on which island beach she washed that man right out of her hair. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HBR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. of the Hawaiian language. How can Olelo Hawaii speakers take advantage of social media platforms to do that? HPR's Ku'uve Hirishi joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, <laughs> Catherine. Uh, that's a tongue twister there. Uh, but, you know, traditional approaches to the revitalization of Hawaiian language or Olelo Hawaii over the last uh, 40 or 50 years is really focused on classroom instruction, right? Creation of Hawaiian language immersion schools and curriculum development at the college level. Um, but over the last 10, 15 years, social media savvy Hawaiian language speakers have kind of taken to these platforms like Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube uh, for a variety of reasons, but they're creating content that's a blend of Hawaiian language, uh, culture, history, and perspective. So we spoke to some uh, who have uh, some pretty successful sites. Uh, Maluhia States, uh, a Kailua resident who launched the social media account Ka'ala La. Uh, he's attracted nearly 30,000 followers on Instagram. He's also got TikTok and a podcast, but over the last three years, you know, these short videos for him focused on proper pronunciation of Olelo Hawaii and getting that authentic sound. So State says, you know, we can speak Hawaiian with an English accent uh, or we can speak Hawaiian uh, like our ancestors or kupuna did. And that's really what he tries to get to in his uh, short videos and reels on Instagram, that authentic Hawaiian sound that he says when he went to school at UH Manuan and heard it in a classroom, it didn't sound like what he was hearing in old oral history tapes and in speaking to Mauna Leo or native speakers. 
And so that's been the focus of why he decided to take to social media to kind of expose folks to proper pronunciation and that old uh, fashioned uh, sound. And, uh, you know, State says he isn't the end-all source. He's just a messenger for what he calls Olelo Kupuna, or the language of our kupuna. Um, But that's one way in which um, Hawaiian language speakers are taking to social media. Another group we spoke to, and this was interesting, they launched an account called uh, Omiki, which instead of focusing on language learners, actually helps affluent speakers sort of use their language to discuss contemporary issues facing Hawaii. And, you know, this came out of uh, sort of what was seen during the pandemic with a lot of language learning, um, uh, social media accounts, but also podcasts and things coming up online where folks could learn Hawaiian and and do that for free. And, you know, they were thinking, what about the folks who already know it, but want to take it a step further and elevate it? And so they went ahead and and have been um, creating content along those lines. So it's it's like uh, intermediate or advanced, I guess, right? (laughs) Exactly. That's what I'm listening (laughs) to. And that's mostly to sort of, you know, uh, remind yourself of the vocabulary for uh, issues that we're talking about every day that you see in the papers, um, and also kind of increase your vocabulary, right, and and create community uh, with folks that aren't just here in Hawaii but around the world because social media has sort of that reach. Uh, but the use of these social media platforms uh, to advance Olalo Hawaii was a topic of discussion at a recent virtual gathering of Hawaiian language speakers. Uh, it was part of the UNESCO efforts, as we've heard before, uh, known as the International Decade of Indigenous Languages, and the question posed to everyone at this conference was really, how do we build on the momentum of the last 40 years of Hawaiian language revitalization to sort of uh, chart the course, uh, the future course of Olelo Hawaii and digital empowerment or, or social media was one of those those avenues and those platforms. Uh, how Ole Lorenzo Elarco, who is a Hawaiian language teacher, uh, helped organize the gathering, and you know, he says, Native Hawaiians have a long tradition of adopting technology and using it to their advantage, uh, especially when it comes to Olala Hawaii. Yeah, no, 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 he thinks of um, the printing press back in the, you know, in the early 1800s and utilizing that to sort of preserve Hawaiian language and Hawaiian knowledge. And then fast forward to the 70s when uh, Kaleo Hawaii, a radio program up at University of Hawaii, uh, used uh, that platform, radio, to really get the, the voices of Manaleo or native speakers out to the masses and to expose everyone's ears to that. So now uh, these sort of young native Hawaiian speakers utilizing social media, nothing new. Uh, But, you know, I think a lot of the discussion around that was sort of this idea that moving forward, it'll be interesting to see the impact of of the Hawaiian language on the use of social media in these Mm -hmm. circles, but also what social media, uh, what impact social media might have on the language, right? In terms of preserving, we hear this all the time with English, it's shortening things and, and, you know, the grammar's just horrible sometimes. Is that going to result in terms of Hawaiian language being used on these platforms because it's so decentralized and sort of whoever wants to put content out there can uh, so there were concerns. It wasn't just like, yay, for social media. It's this idea of uh, discussions on data sovereignty and whether or not, you know, these um, 
this content that these social media creators are putting out is going to be appropriated or used by other folks in some way. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is, you know, okay, quality control, right? I mean, because there's so much on the internet, uh, you know, and then, too, when you think of language, um, you know, that there are certain dialects or, you know, certain accents, and so it's just interesting to me, you know. Yeah, there's a a, a form of empowerment in it being decentralized as a source because everyone can participate, but there is that that, uh, sort of concern that um, you know quality control like you mentioned and and I think uh, the overall takeaway was sort of whatever Olelo Hawaii we can have and more of it is a good thing we'll work on quality control later but if we can get more folks even paying attention or as you mentioned uh, seeing it uh, having it be visible on these platforms uh, the better yeah, but but it would be curious to see then if you could uh, you know listen to a, a native speaker from Niihau right. or, and Mililii and see if there's any differences, <laughs> differences. nuances, I, right? There definitely are. That'll be interesting that we hear. Yeah, fascinating. But thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was Kuvehi Hirishi talking about Hawaiian language influencers on social media. Check out her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. We continue the conversation around Olelo Hawaii on today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light is on the line today. Good morning. Good morning. So, gosh, your story is about a charter uh, question uh, on the ballot for uh, Maui County. It is. This is a uh, once-every-decade process that Maui County voters get the opportunity to vote up or vote down Uh, a bunch of proposed amendments to the charter that governs their daily life. And one of them is going to be um, a a twofold question. One, should the county operate as a bilingual government? And two, should the county establish a department of OEB resources to sort of safeguard and perpetuate um, and help with long-range planning through a lens of Hawaiian culture. So, gosh, I mean, this is, um, you know, it, it, it's a new one, but, you know, I guess you, you know, you can stop and think about, you know, all the Hawaiian language newspapers that we have and then a lot of the legislation, you know, uh, that was in Hawaiian uh, that is stored away at the state archives, you know, so, you know, you, you do think, well, gosh, you know, we have both uh, Hawaiian and English as our official languages here. You know, should we go down this route? Right. So this would really sort of actualize, you know, uh, something that's already technically in play by, you know, requiring the county to do things like um, put out meeting agendas, for example, in Hawaiian language and in English language. And, you know, we did see Maui County um, uh, take the lead. They created another department, right, the uh, Agriculture Department, which was um, different. Um, they just named their director and deputy director. But, you know, you know, how's that going to work for, um, for this uh, bilingual government, you know, if, if the voters decide to go with this? How does that work? 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's certainly not every day that a county creates a new department. And as you mentioned, in 2020, Maui County voters overwhelmingly approved a charter amendment proposal to establish a Department of Agriculture to, you know, address things like, you know, food insecurity um, and to sort of help diversify the economy away from just tourism. Um, so so that's kind of the most recent example we have. And, and like you said, there's a staff of two people so far, uh, they, a director and a deputy director. They both have salaries uh, a little bit above $100,000. So we can sort of look to what's happening with that department and, and maybe imagine how how this department, if voters say they want it, would sort of would sort of go, how long it would take to stand it up and you know, what kind of staffing it might have. But there are so many questions about, you know, how many staff would it have? What exactly would the department do and and how much would it cost? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I can see how voters might be able to wrap their heads around food insecurity uh, easier than, you know, maybe this Hawaiian language thing, you know, where there's a a need to do uh, versus a nice uh, um, would be nice to do. Um, But, yeah, lots more questions. I think this raises than answers. It does. And so one of the other uh, charter amendment proposals that voters will, will have the opportunity to say yay or nay to, um, ironically, is, is one that would require the county to uh, conduct a financial assessment for all future charter amendment proposals so that voters can have a sense of what they're getting themselves into. I mean, some things sound great in theory, but is it worth you know, somebody's got to pay for it. The taxpayer usually is, has got to pay for it. And, and so um, we don't have that information, although the uh, county auditor is in the process of trying to figure this out. Um, and so sometime in early October, we should have a sense of what all these proposals might cost. So that that information should be available before Election Day. OK, so there will be some education out there uh, to uh, uh at least get the, the voters up to speed on what it is, you know, they're, they're yeah. voting up or down on. And then, um, gosh, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else, um, you know, that's been raised about this question. Well, I think, you know, there are some positions uh, within Maui County government that some supporters of this proposal say, um, you know, really they're they're sort of, ill-placed where they are departmentally. You know, the county hired its first ever archaeologist in 2020. Uh, There are uh, Hawaiian language translators who are on staff within the county. And and so maybe these and other positions would, um, you know, better be placed under a, a department of OEV resources. Um, so, so that's certainly something that, that supporters say. Supporters also say, you know, hey, sometimes you have to spend money up front in order to save money in the long run. There are countless examples where, for example, development and, um, you know, cultural um, uh, preservation, there's sort of a clash there. And, and you see lawsuits and contested cases. So maybe we could handle this up front. All right. Well, fascinating question. We'll see how that plays out. But thanks so much, Brittany. You're welcome. That was a reporter, Brittany Light, with today's Reality Check uh, reader story about uh, Maui County operating as a bilingual government. Visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's 2022-23 Hale Kulani Masterwork Season, presenting Naoto Otomo Conducts Mendelssohn November 6th. Tickets at myhso.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Will Jawando, author of My Seven Black Fathers. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how mentorship can provide a pivotal change in the life of a young person. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing medical, dental, and behavioral health care services island-wide. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. In this week's Mono Minute, where's that laugh coming from? Today, we hear the song of a game bird, one called uh, Urkel's Franklin. But you might think its song is really more of a cackle. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. <laughs> Urkel's Franklins are plump, partridge-like birds with a distinctive chestnut-colored cap on their head and chestnut-streaked feathers on their chest and back. They're about 16 inches long and weigh a little more than two pounds. Originally from the Ethiopia region of Africa, Hawaii is the only other place in the world they're found in the wild, as they were introduced as a game bird here in the 1950s to 60s. They can be seen on Oahu, Kauai, and the Big Island, where they've become very common, especially in higher elevation grasslands and shrublands. If you hear a loud laughing cackle, but there's no people around, there's a good chance there's an Urkel's Franklin nearby. <laughs> Urkel's Franklins are similar to chickens in that they spend most of their time on the ground and also prefer to run rather than fly. Also like chickens, the females lay a large clutch of eggs in a nest on the ground. And when the young hatch, they're already covered with feathers and are ready to forage on their own. A recent study from Oahu showed that they love to consume a variety of fruits from both native and non-native plant species and are likely spreading a variety of invasive plants such as vivee, blackberry, and clydemia into our native forests. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, exploring Hawaii Island with visitors and kama'aina since 1993. More information at hawaii-forest.com. This morning, we asked you about a Hollywood beauty, famous in the 1950s. She was born into a theatrical family. Her mother was a dancer and her father a musician. At the young age of 13, she was already a singer and ballet dancer with the Los Angeles Civic Light Opera Company. 
She went on to attend Hollywood High, had a movie contract with 20th Century Fox by the time she was 17, and history would have been different if she had worked under the original stage name Mitzi Gerber. The head of Fox Studios said it sounded like a delicatessen, and so he gave her another name with the initials MG. She rose to international fame after she appeared on screen in 1958 as Nellie Forbush in the film version of Rodgers and Hammerstein's South Pacific. It was a performance that garnered her a nomination for a Best Actress Golden Globe Award. Mitzi Gaynor washed that man right out of her hair on Kauai's Luma High Beach. That was the answer to today's quiz, and lots of people called in on this one. And the winner today, Stephen O'Hara from St. Louis Heights. If you have an idea for a quiz, uh, please write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Hawaii Theater Center, presenting Joan Osborne and Cracker, performing 8 p.m. Saturday, October 1st. Tickets at hawaiitheater.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks CFA, we recap one of Governor Ige's signature recurring events called the Hawaii Annual Code Challenge. We'll find out how the program evolved, what was accomplished, and what we can expect in the final 7th Annual State Hackathon. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health and the National Emphasis Program, helping to protect employees from heat-related hazards. labor.hawaii.gov slash h-i-o-s-h slash heat. does it mean to be Asian in 2022? That's one of the questions a new theater production at the University of Hawaii at Manoa is aiming to answer. It's titled Chinese, Japanese, All Mixed Up. It's a devised production, an original work written through a collaboration between the student actors and the director. Five women, all Asian, comprise the cast and craft original scenes based on their personal experiences, news headlines, and past events. Emmy Award winner and Honolulu Theater for Youth Artistic Associate uh, Reiko Ho is the guest director. She grew up on Oahu and is an uh, UH alum. She says she's from a very Japanese-Chinese family with history in Hawaii's plantation era. She sat down with the conversation's Russell Subiano after Monday night's dress rehearsal to discuss the themes of the play. One of the themes the play explores is what does it mean to be Asian in 2022? During the development and writing process, what was something that you learned was still true about Asian Americans and something that you learned had changed? Well, there was quite a few things that I learned in the process that are still taking place. First, I think the name segment, Mm -hmm. the name segment that came up in the show was inspired by the fact that sometimes white names are the first point of erasure as we try to assimilate into our dominant culture, whether we're new to 
coming to America or we've been here like me for generations in Hawaii. So I think erasure and how we erase ourselves, that there is still discrimination and in fact has been going on for, you know, since Asians came to America and it is still going on. And we talked about history from the Chinese Exclusion Act to the internment camps of World War II, all the way through the Atlanta shootings, which we did include in our show. It's something that's so subtle and something that's been happening for so long that I don't think a lot of us realize it. That was a pretty impactful segment of the show, watching these young ladies talk about how the teacher didn't care for their, their ethnic name or didn't want to take the effort to pronounce it correctly and just gave them an American name, a much easier name to pronounce for them. This play is described as a devised theater production, which is kind of a hybrid of traditional playwriting and improv theater. It borrows some of the best from both worlds. How was it an advantage to use the devised style of playwriting for this kind of subject? I think my intention for the piece is to make the cast feel seen and heard. It's about the process and not just about the product that we are producing for the audience. And we also want to include the audience in that conversation. So the devised method of working where it became really personal and it was about them being brave and vulnerable and sharing those stories and being able to say their truth in a way that might not be possible in a pre-written scripted play. I see the usefulness in being able to use the devised style, especially when you want to cover a real timely subject or, or current events, right? It's, it's, a, it's a style that you can use to really address things that are happening in society right now. Also, you know, there's not that many, for me in my experience as an Asian American, um, there's, you know, there's not as many works that really speak our truth. And this has been something that has been pervasive throughout my entire career. So I love creating new work that really does showcase the time and the people. And I love making stories for our diverse communities here in Hawaii. It felt like the performers, the actors, all contributed a significant amount to the writing process. The production features a cast of five, all female, all Asian. How much did each performer contribute from their personal experience to the production? Every piece comes from something about them that it was, it, it's all completely inspired by them. It was my privilege to be listening and to be facilitating and then to help shape and direct them on the stage. We sat together, we talked, we discussed. I helped do the writing and the putting together, but those ideas, many of those words, they're all theirs. And I love the idea that I make space for this next generation of young artists, and then they will create their own stories. And I'm so excited to hear what they will do next and what they will say. Yeah, they did a terrific job of making the experiences very personal. I think my favorite part of the production was the talk about the food and the comparisons <laughs> <laughs> between Anglo food and Asian food. I just thought that was brilliant. And it really opened my eyes to, you know, how standards are created. You know, we tend to think as a Western society that, 
the Anglo dishes are the standard dishes and the Asian dishes are are kind of some you know weird variation. But it was interesting for her to run through it in a way where the Asian dishes are the standard. Where did that come from? That was inspired by our many talks about food, because apparently that is something that all Asians have. <laughs> <laughs> food, family, tradition, it all kind of goes together. So, you know, we would talk about tradition and then there was food. <laughs> we would talk about family and then there was food. And then we just talked about food. <laughs> so we had many conversations about that. And then how that whitewashing, you know, or our Americanizing also happens around food. And, and that cast member, Angeline, was really sort of, that was kind of her story. I loved that she always had her Waysian take on <laughs> everything. And I really tried to showcase all of their voices in everything and what they really feel and sound like. And I hope that came across on stage. So that piece is really inspired by her sense of humor about Asian idiosyncrasies <laughs> and then what what things might look like through an Asian lens that was the other part of the conversation that I had with them it's like well what would it look like through an Asian lens what do we want to say about that instead of the reverse where you know the white cultures are taking over our Asian food you know and becoming popular and there's poke bowls and right. whatnot you know that appropriation so what, what would we prefer hearing and that's how that piece started the production uses stereotypes to both exemplify the boxes that Asians were put into in decades past, as well as to celebrate what's great about Asian families and culture. How did you and the students navigate through that without going too far in either direction? Well, I think we knew that some parts of the show would make some people in the audience uncomfortable. In fact, some of it made us very uncomfortable. But it's part of that experience that many of us have had. We also understand that stereotype exists across the board. So we, it was also about us laughing about ourselves <laughs> and the stereotypes that we see and that sometimes we, we make. <laughs> and we wanted to celebrate all of that. After I went to graduate high school, my oriental father wanted me to go Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, and Yale. He never knew what any of those schools was, just that's what I had to go. So I went to UC Irvine. That's why one discovered that my oriental father really wasn't my oriental father. He was my Asian American father. They said I could have one oriental rug or some oriental furniture, but I cannot, cannot have one oriental father. Oriental is one term used for the kind inanimate object. I am hoping that, you know, at, from the beginning of the show, we show you what the difficulties are, but by the end, we hope that everyone feels empowered to own what they are. And I think that was our journey. And that's how I did all of the choosing and bending because I really want the show to be the start of a conversation that is healing, not a conversation that makes us angrier or a conversation that leads to bitterness yeah. or exemplifies that. It's about starting the healing. That's an interesting thought because I know that good art causes the viewer to reflect on their own life. And this play reminded me of how local kids used to make comments about my Asian appearance when I was growing up. And there's a part in the play where the actors ask the audience to say the hurtful things that they've been called in the past. Yes. So it's interesting that you bring up the healing and what you hope audiences will take away from the production. Can you talk a little bit more about what you hope they walk away from the production with? 
you know, first I want my cast to feel seen and heard, but we want to share that with the audience and we want them to be seen and heard. So built into the production is, are those moments of audience participation. And we also know that you might not be comfortable to share and that's okay, but I really appreciate that you walked away and you were thinking about yeah. that and you were thinking about how that affected you because I think we accept a lot of the small things and, and that was part of some of the pieces too. It's how accepting we are of our erasure or how, how we, we've made it okay because yeah. you know we pushed it down. So I hope that the audience walks away and thinks and then that's the way change can happen. Yeah, definitely caused me to reflect and think about what changes I can make. In the press release for the production, you say that it's your fervent belief that we must include young people in these important conversations and empower them to grapple with our collective past and present as Asians in America. What do you believe young people bring to the conversation about the future of Asians in America? Hope. <laughs> I, I watch, I'm, I just my cast, I'm getting emotional just talking about them. They give me hope that things can be different and that change can, be, can happen to all of us. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm emotional just talking about it. Is there anything else you wanted to share about the production? I hope that we have a great audience that comes and I hope they stay for the talk back because that is as important. We want, we want you, the audience, to be a part of our conversation. So we're hoping that people do participate and share and become that ripple effect that goes out into the world. Thank you so much for your time, Reiko. Thank you for allowing me to come and watch the dress rehearsal. I enjoyed our talk. Thank you so much, Russell. Aloha. That was director Reiko Ho talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about a new theater production, Chinese, Japanese, all mixed up. The show opens tonight at the UH Kennedy Theater's uh, Earl Ernst Lab Theater. Uh, audiences are invited to stay afterwards for a discussion with the creative team. Performances will run through Sunday afternoon. We'll have more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we're out of time, but up tomorrow, we're going to hear more about the efforts to survey families about their health issues tied to fuel-contaminated water from Red Hill. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR, and email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find all of our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>